Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised... Press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. What did we just watch? We just watched an episode of Homicide, Life on the Street. This was a series that was on NBC back into the mid to late 90s. It was based on a book written by uh, David Simon, who was then a reporter for the Baltimore Sun. He wrote it about the uh, homicide uh, division of the Baltimore Police Department. After his book was turned into a television series, he got more into television, and he went on to produce shows like The Wire. This was his first effort in episodic television. The particular episode we watched was The, sub- was the Subway, 
which was the seventh episode of the sixth season. That was a very long answer, <laughs> <laughs> but but excuse my uh, thousand yard stare. I just this was a bit of a this was a bit of a this was a bit of a gut punch on a number of levels. Jesus, was it what you were expecting from an episode of a '90s police show? No, it was a huge. It was uh, it was beautiful. It was really good. It was also a huge downer. <laughs> I just want to go like call, crawl into bed and cry now, <laughs> which is not usually how '90s police shows leave me feeling. I'm used to that kind of law and order, like oh that was so dumb, kind of high. This was more of like wow, life is really precious. <laughs> <laughs> really makes you think. So I guess if if we could re- you know kind of give a nutshell summary of what this episode is about, a man. And let me be very clear. This is this is not for the faint of heart. So if you're very squeamish, just be warned. I'm very squeamish, <laughs> and I didn't think it was gonna it was gonna affect me this much, but it really did. Um, a man going to work is pushed in front of the Baltimore subway, and he becomes jammed in between the train and the platform. And police detectives are summoned there because it's very clear that the man is going to die when they remove the train, and they need to figure out was this an accident. Was the man the aggressor or was somebody else on the platform uh, somebody who pushed this man? So that's the central mystery to this case. <sighs> <laughs> oh, I'm such a baby. And and actually, <laughs> uh, the man, the victim in, in this is played by uh, a, a baby-faced uh, Vincent uh, D'Onofrio. Am I saying that right? D'Onofrio? And what do you know him from, Miss Kane? Law and Order, of course. He's in. Uh, he uh, helms the uh, Criminal Intent series. Love him, and uh, you like him from that Conan the Barbarian film. Yes, he played uh, Robert Howard, the creator of the Conan the Barbarian, in a great movie called uh, The Whole Wide World, which we need to watch sometime. We do, but he he looks like a baby in this. It's it's startling how how young he looks. Um, and and who are the other who are the other main players in this? Uh, the other uh, main players in this episode are the uh, two primary Baltimore uh, detectives on the case. One is Frank uh, Pimbleton, or pardon me, Frank Pimberton, who's played by Andre Brower. And his partner is Detective Bayless, who's played by Kyle, I believe it's pronounced Secor, S-E-C-O-R. Mm-hmm. And then there's two other uh, detectives, uh, Clark Johnson, I believe John Sasena who uh, have secondary roles in the investigation. Brower did a really great job in this too. Yeah, he was incredible on this show. Yeah, he was, wow. Uh, modern audiences might know him from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's the uh, stern boss. <laughs> in this case, yeah, he, he, was, he was really incredible in this. Um, so, oh, gosh, I guess this has maybe, maybe affected me so much because on a visceral level, you know, even though I... I have worked in New York City for a long time. I really hate subways. I never am entirely comfortable in a subway. I, I guess a lot of people aren't because they're often kind of gross and crowded and kind of a mess. But there's something there's something about jostling in crowds, getting on a train that freaks me out. And I always even even to to this day, you know, at you know before the pandemic, I was riding the subway basically daily. I would for what ha- like three hours a day, right? No, no, no. That you're. The Metro North is different than the subway. Oh, okay. But I mean, let's just say I, I always had a number of uh, uh, like little rituals and rules for, for riding the subway and for riding trains. 
where like I wouldn't I would I would not ever want to be in like the front row to get to the door I would often hang around columns because nobody can get behind you when you're kind of leaning against the column so this is like this this <laughs> the premise of this episode represents like my worst fucking nightmare and I, I guess a lot of people's worst fucking nightmares but yeah <sighs> were your fears uh, about the subway based on things that actually happened to you um well I mean it's inescapable subway horror stories are inescapable you know crazy people pushing uh just random passers-by under the tracks or fights breaking out or you know any any number of things I was never pushed on the tracks or anything but I you know when you hear that that is a possibility even if it's unlikely to happen to you you know if you're like me and you're kind of paranoid you uh you act accordingly weirdest baddest worst subway situation I ever had was um in the metro in DC it the car once was packed so tightly and people were shoving in that my like rib cage started to hurt like I was starting to be squeezed and I I remember being like ah and then people kind of moved away um and 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 you know the the crowd recalibrated but that was kind (laughs) of scary um but yeah that was in D.C. It wasn't in New York City. And this is, of course, Baltimore. Didn't even know they had a subway system. <laughs> so what happens when the police arrive on the scene of this calamity? Oh, man. Um, so they find uh, their victim uh, conscious. He's trapped, but his basically his torso is out. And uh, they examine sort of his his legs and see that he's he's most definitely going to die after this is after train gets moved and um i guess they're just they, they immediately i mean uh pembleton immediately recognizes that this guy is like really ornery and angry and he's not he's not like an innocent like victim like i accept my death please get a minister he's just like fuck you fuck you all what the fuck are you guys doing he's bullying everyone he's really mean to a, a female paramedic who he seems to really delight in harassing and <laughs> Um, you know, he's not an, he's not an angel by any means, and he's kind of making it difficult for them to conduct an investigation into what exactly happened. And basically, nobody seems to know what exactly happened. All the witnesses saw something different. Some saw this guy shoving people around. Others say he was pushed. Nobody seems to have gotten the full picture, as you can imagine, since it's a crowded morning subway rush. Yeah, there's a montage of Bayless, Detective Bayless, talking to a variety of witnesses who give very confusing, even conflicting or contradictory accounts. And it seems uh, hopeless at first to try to figure out what really happened. But they do tap into one witness who seemed to have maybe been close, at least, to the victim when he was when he ended up crushed, basically. Right. And this witness starts out by being very uh, sympathetic and saying, you know, oh, my God, that could have been me. But there's maybe something a little off about him. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. But you're not sure. Maybe he's just traumatized by what he saw here. Because you can imagine that if you saw that happen to anybody in real life, that would that would be, yeah, that would be really horrifying. And meanwhile, uh, Andre Brower is spending some time with the victim. And the victim at this point, they've not really broached the topic of his death with him. Yes, they've tried to subtly being like, do you want a priest? Do you want a minister? Do you want a rabbi? Do you want to talk to anybody? And he's been like, fuck off. And so they're like backed off, basically. Would you want to know if you were in this situation? Would you want to know that you were going to die? Or would you want them to 
sort of act like, don't worry, you're doing great. We're going to get you out of this. I always like to know things. So, yes, I would like to know. How about you? Would you like false hope? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why? I don't want to know that. Because then if I, then every little pain or discomfort I'm feeling in that moment, it's like, what's it for? I just want to die at that point. You know, I wouldn't want to know and have that build up, I guess. This is a fun episode. <laughs> You'd just be like asking, peppering people with questions, trying to get them, trying to get them off their balance until they admitted to you that you were going to die. That's a little bit what happens in this episode because he begins to realize he's going to die because uh, Andre Brower keeps on asking him, is there anybody you want us to contact or anyone you want to see? And the first people he talks about are people who are a great distance away and the odds are this man has less than an hour to live. And so he starts peppering him. Is there somebody closer? Is there somebody closer? And it turns out he has a girlfriend in the area, but she's out jogging. And he says, well, where does she jog? What does she look like? What is she wearing? And he's like, well, can't you just go to her apartment and wait for her to show up? And he begins to realize that there must be a reason there's this time pressure to find someone for him. And he puts the pieces together. Yeah, and it, and it kind of freaks him out. He's not in a lot of pain at this point, but he's just very angry and he's furious about the uh, the randomness of this whole entire thing. Like why he had to take the subway today, why it had to be a Friday, like why all of all of the little details that led him up to being pinned under a train. And like, honestly, I think that kind of stuff, when some minor inconvenience happens to me, I cannot imagine what my brain would be doing in that situation. <laughs> I'll be like, <laughs> I'll be like, oh, I missed, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I stubbed my toe and I'll be thinking, how did I get here? And like, this is just, this is <laughs> agonizing, Kevin. This whole episode was just. Was it too much for you? It really was. <laughs> I'm all for like stupid bullshit, but this like deep, painful shit is just God. Was this a controversial episode when it came out? Do you know? I'm, I'm I'd be curious. I'm sure it was lauded because I mean it's really well written and really good. It was lauded. I think there was a PBS special about the making of this particular episode. Yeah, it's re it's really good. It's just so heavy, but it's kind of an interesting kind of twist on the homicide bit because the victim is alive and uh. And, and, you know, able to be interviewed well, like that. What a surreal situation to be a detective in that situation where you're you're able to interview your victim um, before they die. But, you know, you, you know, they're certainly going to die. And there's a point later on in the episode where uh, the victim says to uh, Brower, what can you do for me? And Brower realizes there's not much he can do for him. And that makes me wonder what does a homicide detective really do for the victims in his cases? Not not much for them particularly. I mean, I'd, I'd say maybe if you want to argue about who's who is actually receiving the benefit of a homicide detective's actions, I would say maybe the family and loved ones, people who cared about this person and valued their lives and want to see somebody punished or, uh, you know, or prevent somebody from doing something like this in the future. So I guess in this case, the person who would benefit would be the man's girlfriend. And society at large, I would, I would argue. And you actually 
liked this plot line because two other detectives enter the picture and they're sent off to find his girlfriend by going around and hanging around with people who are jogging. So tell us about this plot line and why you liked it. I'm not familiar with the program Homicide Life on the Streets. This is actually the first episode I've ever seen. So really, (laughs) really uh, (laughs) lighthearted introduction. But these are my two funny guys. Love these guys. You know, when you're in a steamy, smelly subway and you walk up the steps into the sunlight, into the fresh air, this was the these scenes were the equivalent of that for me. They're literally taking you out of this tense, heart-rending scene on the subway platform, and they're taking you out into the world. Baltimore is bustling, and it just looks like any other day. Nobody has any idea about what horror is unfolding beneath their feet, quite literally. And uh, these two detectives are just looking for this guy's girlfriend. They know it's pretty much a futile quest. They Basically, all they know is that the lady is white, brown hair, wearing a blue tracksuit and jogging around the area. Um, And so they're just trying their best. And they're kind of like, they're telling each other jokes. They're talking about like life and death uh, in a casual way. The banter feels very fun. It's, it's a much needed pressure valve off the rest of the episode. I think I thought it really was effective because, you know, maybe in a worse written show that would have felt like filler. Like, Oh, let's see what these two clowns are doing. (laughs) But but in the hands of a capable writer, it, it, it kind of is like a nice reprieve and sort of also kind of gives you a sense of like, you know, this is kind of a situation where they're having to sort of like as homicide detectives, like go back and forth between both worlds. Like on the one hand, they're dealing with all this har- horrible, heavy, dark shit. And on the other, you know, they're kind of like having to just deal with it and go about their day. So it, it felt like it was still relevant and apt, even though it was a little bit more lighthearted. What kind of things do they talk about? (sighs) They talk about sex. uh, They talk about their own experiences with death, their own, um, you know, worries about what will happen when their time comes. Uh, They're kind of making fun of each other. Uh, So, you know, just, just to kind of whatever, whatever you might talk about with your friend who you work with after you see some shit like this. Just a couple of guys. Love these guys. I don't even know their names, but I was like, these guys seem very cool. I love them. <laughs> Get me out of this subway platform. <laughs> Just take me out to the Baltimore park where we're looking for, uh, what is it, Sarah Flanagan. I liked I liked one scene when, what do they say? They're like, oh, Flanagan. She must, she must like look Irish. And the other cop is like, what does that even mean? <laughs> it's like freckles on her face and a shamrock in her heart. And you know <laughs> As an Irish lady, I think that sounds like me. <laughs> I have a shamrock in my heart. I'm like just clinging to these moments, these rays of light streaming through the subway grate. <laughs> There's even like moments when they were talking about their balls. Yeah. But you still... I loved it. <laughs> because it was better than that subway. I'm like, fellas, talk about everything. I want to know about it. It's like when you're at a party and there's someone you like who who and you're an awkward person like me and you see an acquaintance there and then suddenly like if they come over and talk to you like they're your best friend you love them you're going to cling to them because you don't know anyone else here and it's scary <laughs> you just want to go with them oh man this episode really affected you am I being a big baby well I, I, it was a very intense episode yes and it clearly affected you deeply yes 
You don't seem to be quite yourself. No. <laughs> it's really, it's dark shit. I just can't imagine knowing you were going to die and having to live for so much longer after that. And having it be not like an illness, not like a, okay, you have um, some horrible diagnosis, but have it be like just some random shit that you were in the wrong place at the wrong time and like you're pinned in something. Oh, God. Just don't like that. And at the beginning of the episode, they say he probably has about an hour left. And of course, the episode runs an hour. Who, who would you want there if you were in a situation like that? Would you want me or someone else who loves you there? Or would you? Yes. You would. Okay. You were saying you wouldn't want someone to see you like that. I don't know if I would. I don't know if I'd want you there. Why not? You'd rather die alone? <sighs> I don't want to die alone, but in a situation like, I don't know, I'd probably end up wanting you there, but I'd be very scared to have you see me like that. What, what would, well, it would why like, scared? Well, it's like the, the, the happy memories that we've shared, and then you're seeing me like a, a mangled mess, basically, you know? Wouldn't you want me to like hold your hand as you uh, expire? <sighs> I guess. I, I guess the question then is, would you want to see me like that? And be with me I would as wanna, I die. I would want to be with you, yeah. If there was any chance you could offer me comfort, I'm guessing you'd want to be there. Yeah, so, yeah, if I if you put it that way, yeah. I'd want to be with you. So that's why I say I would let you be with me, even though I would be like, ah, uh, just, <laughs> just let me die. <laughs> would you want to say goodbye? I would. But you can understand the impulse of not wanting people to see you when you're like that. No. Maybe, well, maybe... Okay, well, you're not very understanding then. <laughs> Why did you pick this episode? <laughs> I had uh, a relative. I'll, I'll call her a relative, though that's not completely accurate. But uh, I had a relative who had some sort of medical procedure which involved uh, a bandage on her face. And when people wanted to visit her in the hospital to offer their love and support and let her know they cared, she refused to let anyone come into the hospital room because she did not want to be seen with a bandage on her face. And that didn't really seem too healthy or rational to me because it's people who love her and want to be there for her and they don't care about whether or not there's a bandage on her face. I think it's more about I would be afraid that I would become very emotional to see somebody I loved when I'm trapped like that. And I would be afraid that I would have a physical reaction and it would make it hurt more. It's an interesting choice that uh, they chose not to make the victim to be super sympathetic. He regularly, there's a paramedic working on him who happens to be female. And how does he treat her? Oh, horribly he calls her a bitch. He's he's constantly yelling at her. A lot of his rage seems to be the fact that she's not caving to his immediate wishes on everything. And I think the fact that she's a lady, you you get that sense. So he's he's a bit of a chauvinistic asshole. And I think that was a, a smart cho choice by the writers because, you know, just because someone's a victim of something horrible happening to them doesn't mean they're necessarily like an angel or the nicest person in the world. And that's kind of patronizing for the audience and, and just for, you know, victims of actual crimes if you're trying to make everyone out to be like, oh, my God, I forgive everyone. Goodbye. Like, not everybody is going to be Tiny Tim in this situation. 
And it's probably realistic that a person's basest instincts would be coming into play in a moment like this. Yeah, and even though he's not a person you'd necessarily want to go out to dinner with, you still feel a lot of sympathy and empathy for him in this horrible situation he's in. And at one point he gets upset with the paramedic because he wants he's beginning to have some discomfort and he wants a pain shot. And she says if she gives him a pain shot, it could thin his blood. And he has a million to one shot of living. But if his blood was thinner, it would take that chance away. And she doesn't want to do that. And he gets so upset that she's now saying he has a million to one shot because that's giving him some hope. And I guess hope, uh, even a tiny bit of hope, can sometimes be cruel. So what's the dynamic like between uh, Andre Brower's character and the uh, victim? Well, Brower does a really wonderful job in this whole episode. You know, you can kind of see at first him sort of um, looking at this guy as kind of like a nightmare because not only is he rude and kind of a jerk, but um, when when you're in a situation like this and you're dealing with a victim who's not only being super unpleasant to everyone around them, but is also... Um, you know, just dealing with something that's so out of the norm and something that you probably, you can relate to in the sense that you're horrified by, but you can't go and be like, yeah, man, I know I once broke my leg. Yeah, It's like, you don't know what to do with that. You don't know what to do with that emotionally. So you see him kind of start off in a place where he's f- putting physical distance between him and the victim. He's sort of curt with his responses. And it's not in a mean way. Like this guy's being really rude and he's kind of just, answering him but having to deal with him but overall over time as they sort of start connecting he gets physically closer um he he opens up he's telling him about his life his struggles and you know you can kind of see this thaw in their relationship that happens over time and I thought that was played really well and it was it was subtle it wasn't like hokey or anything I thought it was nice so around this time, um, you know, as we kind of keep going, uh, basically the the episode is sort of taking three, uh, I guess, like there three of three different paths in terms of exploring this this incident. Um, you have Brower dealing with the mystery of how to comfort a dying man while he's still alive in a in a traumatic situation. You have the two comic relief detectives solving the mystery of where the hell is this Sarah lady. And then the uh, the third one is Detective Bayless, who's trying to figure out actually who committed this crime. So in some ways, he has the most traditional role because he's literally trying to figure out who is the perpetrator here. So how does that go, Kevin? He seems to be focusing a lot of attention on this one witness who this witness is complaining of having uh, a headache and he starts talking, the witness starts talking about his background. First of all, he says he's from Maryland. It turns out he hasn't really been in Maryland all that long. Uh, He says he was going to go look for a job that day. He can't remember the name of the last place where he worked. Bayless starts getting a little suspicious. He says, if I run your name through the computer, I'm not going to get any surprises. Am I? The guy says, Oh no, no, of course not. So, uh, Bayless runs his name through the computer and he waits for their resorts. Resorts. He waits for the results, which in the mid-90s took a little bit longer than they do today. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Brower's character is still with the victim. 
and they're discussing how they plan to move the train. Can you tell us what that process is? They're going to deploy a bunch of airbags underneath the train carriage, and it's going to basically surge the train up and allow them to extract uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. <laughs> They're going to get him out. But D'Onofrio is having uh, a lot of pain and fear. What's he afraid of at this point? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> what is he afraid of at this point? They might amputate his legs. Oh, right. Yeah. I'm sorry. I've like lost track of where we are. Um, He's freaked out because it's. I thought that was an interesting thing because he was like, something horrible has happened to him and he's kind of worried about an outcome that happens to people and they live with and they live pretty happy lives despite something like that happening, you know, but like that's what he's fixated on. I think that's kind of realistic. It's like almost like his brain is unable to process the overall thing going on. So it has to focus on like, okay, well, I really don't want this outcome. And a lot of people seem to fear disability more than they fear death. They fear living a, a quote unquote reduced life because that's what it's perceived as if, if, if he, in his perception, being a double amputee is, is somehow yeah, we, worse we, than death, which is obviously not true. Yeah, we live in a very ableist uh, society mm -hmm. where uh, disabilities, people with them are, are looked down upon. And this was even more true back in the late 90s. And I'm sure it's more true with men because men, you know, in our culture are supposed to be vigorous. They're supposed to be active. They're supposed to be physical. And he very much seems like kind of a, as I said, kind of a, a, a kind of a tool, frankly, <laughs> somebody who would be perpetuating that kind of thinking. So instead of being like, okay, I'm going to overcome that challenge, it's more of like, but it's like, of course, all the people behind the scenes who are doing the medical stuff in this are basically like, that's not, that's not a problem. The problem is like, we're going to move this train and you're going to immediately die. Not that, you know, you're, you're going to lose your legs in this accident. Right. His fear is kind of uh, irrational. Yes. He's taking, he's very angry. He's taking a lot of it out on the paramedic, but he's really connecting uh, with Brower's character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Brower's telling him about a, his experience having a stroke, and you know, and and they've warmed up to each other enough at this point that D'Onofrio doesn't react angrily, saying, "Well, you know, like that's not the same as this." Like they they open up about what that's like, basically. And uh, D'Onofrio's character uh, is complaining about the pain he's now having, and he says, uh, "Why did God give us pain?" And what does Brower say? It's basically the great equalizer. Every human being who's ever lived knows what pain feels like. He says it's the one thing we all have in common. Mm -hmm. And that's true. So you like that sentiment? I like that sentiment. I mean, pain is basically, isn't that basically nature's way of, of uh, attempting to uh, teach us a lesson, basically? Because if you have pain, maybe because you do something or because something's wrong with your body, it's like a warning sign. It's like an alarm going off. Um, and if you see other uh, someone else going through pain, you sympathize with them. But maybe in, in the back of your kind of animal brain, you're thinking, oh, I better, uh, I better not do whatever that guy just did. So you're saying pain can be a blessing and it can be an alarm. It well, can be a teacher. It's like cruel nature's really mean way of teaching us. You know, it's the stick instead of the carrot. <laughs> And it's it's making sure that people, you know, are in line, you know, and that's 
And that's not very nice for us nowadays. We'd probably just prefer to get like an email or something <laughs> reminding <laughs> us not to do certain things. Uh, meanwhile, Bayless has learned some more information about the witness that he's been uh, talking to. Uh, this person was formally arrested in Chicago and put in hospital because he wasn't competent to stand trial. And what was he? What did he do in Chicago that caused this uh, problem? He pushed a man in front of a train. <sighs> yep. So, this is a repeat offense. What, what, Kevin? What do you? What does what? What does society do with people like this? Because I mean, this is not a this is a work of fiction, obviously, but they're in you know in many cities. But I mean, I can think of New York at least two incidents in my lifetime where it was a big news story of people pushing people in front of the train, and it for for not like for no clear reason for not like and it wasn't like oh we were shoving each other and it got out of hand. It was more of like just because. What do you do with someone like that? Basically, uh, it's murder. So why wouldn't you treat them uh, as you would any other murderer? Do you think it was realistic in the 90s that this guy would have been let out of jail in Chicago? I'm not sure. Do they make it clear if the person in Chicago uh, died? They don't make it clear. And they just said it was a, it was a charge. They never say it was a murder charge. So maybe I think I think attempted murder in general, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but attempted murder often kind of is treated like like murder's kind of like cousin that everyone forgets about instead of basically like an unsuccessful murder, which is what it is. <laughs> it's like it's almost treated with almost like kind of like more of a slap on on the wrist in many cases where it's like, yeah. oh, you tried your best, but no dice. And it's like, well, you know, maybe maybe you should take that a little bit more seriously. Yeah, and, and in legal circles, sometimes there can even be an argument as to when somebody is guilty of attempted murder. In other words, at what point does an effort or an idle thought become an actual attempt? Hmm. But you would, I mean, pushing somebody in a way that they yes. get hurt by a train is probably on, on the far side of that spectrum. But if, if John Smith... Is thinking the Jamestown colonist? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so if Jane, love that joke. <laughs> if Jane Doe is thinking of committing murder, and she she thinks maybe I will uh, stab my husband with a steak knife, and she goes on Amazon and she orders a steak knife, has she at that point committed attempted murder? Right. Well, just make sure you don't check our Amazon history after this, okay? <laughs> I remember there was a case in New York, I believe, uh, a few years ago, where it was like a, um, I think an NYPD officer was on some kind of fetish website and was fantasizing about like eating women and 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 t like tying women up and like slitting their throats and drinking their blood and stuff and like all this gruesome stuff, and it turned into a really big cannibal cop case. The cannibal cop, and and I know the big central question was like was. I, the prosecution sort of couched it as he was planning to do these things with another person on the fetish side. And the defense was that, no, they were just acting out of, they were just acting out of fantasy, but it would have never gone as far as murder. So it's an interesting question. Yeah. 
but one that's honestly not too relevant to this episode of Homicide Life on the Streets because in this case, this guy was uh, was pushing people in Chicago too. He wasn't just he w- he wasn't just writing fan fiction about it. Yeah, he was actually putting people in danger, mm-hmm. or in this case, killing them. Yeah, I'm gonna say this. I mean, subways. I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's not the 90s anymore. Subways in general are pretty safe. So I don't want to sound like a wimp who's terrified of the subway. I guess it's like I operate on on a kind of an anxiety level maybe higher than most people so i'm always worried about getting shoved into a train even though i don't think that's likely to happen and it's obviously not likely to happen to most people but i tend to operate based on like what's the worst outcome here and how can i avoid it (laughs) not a very healthy way to operate necessarily but uh yeah i think shows like this definitely give a lot of people who don't live in cities like a really horrible view of subways in general and (laughs) Well, generally these shows give an awful view of the cities they take place in to outsiders. Uh, We have an acquaintance who's afraid to visit Central Park in New York because they believe uh, it's a place where there's lots of crimes and murders. And you say that the reason why TV shows often have crimes and murders that take place in Central Park is because it's easier to film there. Yeah, it's easier to film there. And it's a quick central location where people immediately like are like that Central Park. And, and it's, a, it's you know, and now, like, you have a whole generation of people who are like, geez, I better not go there. When I when I was when I was watching SVU, a tourist got murdered there. I don't want to have that happen to me. Um, so it's yeah, I think we need more rural shows with horrific crimes that makes everyone scared of small towns that would even it out. And then everyone can be scared of everywhere. That's what we want here. That's your big dream. That's my big dream for everyone. That's, that's your platform. Yes. <laughs> Be scared all the time, no matter where you are. You're not, you're not, you can't escape this in small towns. How many, how many, how many like uh, true crime shows have you watched where it started off with a sheriff being like, we could have never expected this to happen in our small town. It's like, why do you think you're special? Come on. And why are they so cocky? It's a, it's, I think it's like a Midwestern thing about thinking you're better than everyone else. Well, actually, the Midwest has better than everywhere else. No. That's my answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so the, the comic relief detectives are still out there looking for uh, the jogger. Yeah, they're asking women, are you sure you're not Sarah? It's pretty fun. <laughs> it's, a nice, it's a nice reprieve. And then we cut back to uh, Andre Brower. At this point, he's sitting closer than ever to the victim. Uh He's leaning into him. Uh, obviously, at this point, the two have a very uh, deep uh, connection. Yeah, and it's time to move the train, you know, because they're going to have to at some point, and I guess they're figuring there's no point in drawing this out. And at this point, the guy is experiencing, he's starting to experience more pain. But also at this point, uh, Bayless uh, puts the guy who shoved the victim under arrest. Mm. And he shares this news with Andre Brower, and he says, are you going to let the victim know? And what does Brower say? He says he, do- he doesn't think the guy can handle knowing that it was just some nut, basically. Some random guy who did this for no reason. And Bayless is saying if it was him, he'd want to know. So if it was you, would you want to know who would killed you, even if it was just a random nothing event? It would depend. If I had got, if I was in there thinking somebody did this on somebody did this on pers- purpose, I would probably want to know. If I was there at peace with 
the fact that like okay it was just a it was too crowded on the platform and i accidentally got knocked over here i might not want to know i think your preference would be if you had minutes to live you'd love it if i went over and told you you know anya the person who did this to you did this because you were getting too close with that story you were covering you were just too good and threatened them too much <laughs> feel like i'm living in a noir or something wouldn't you love that yeah um maybe if you vowed to kill the person for me after i died then maybe i'd like that yeah i think you'd really dig that yeah i like to be part of some some revenge i, I want to be part of your dark revenge backstory if i went to you and say oh uh, yeah anya the person that uh shoved you it was just a random nut probably back on the streets in a few months yeah See you in the funny papers. Well, then I'd definitely tell you to kill them. And <laughs> <laughs> <end> their lives. <laughs> I would be so angry, I think. What about you? Would you want to know? I like information. I like knowing things. Well, what are you going to do with that information when you're pinned underneath a train about to die? I like knowing things. <laughs> Mark it in your little scrapbook. <laughs> it's better to know things than it is not to know things. Because just even if you don't know something... The fact is still out there. What if you thought you were put? What if you thought it was an accident? I like to know things. Well, what if you thought it was an accident? You'd want them to rip that bandaid off. Why? Why would it being a random accident be more comforting than knowing it was a nut? Because if it was a nut, if maybe we had a better criminal justice system, that person would be in some sort of psychiatric facility or in jail. If it was an accident, maybe someone tripped over something that was left out and then it's a sign that like the cleaning at the subway station leaves something to be desired. When it's a person who is, is doing it for no apparent reason, there's a malevolence there that makes me question, you know, the goodness of people. You already question the goodness of people. I just, I don't know if I, I mean, it's like I would want people to know after I was gone. But if I'm experiencing at times agonizing pain being crushed underneath a train at that point, you know, maybe let me focus on me at that point. <laughs> You're so selfish. Yeah. Maybe it's my Such time. A diva. It's time to work on myself. <laughs> You're treating your death like it's your personal spa day. It is. It should be. Yeah. Demanding all the finest uh, accoutrements <laughs> to send myself out. Yeah. You'd, you'd be all like, Oh, don't mind me. Oh, can I have a magazine? Oh, no, no worries. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. We, we, if I'm dying, I don't want to have the burden of having to make awkward small talk with a detective I've never met. That's just awkward. Leave me be. You wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to motivate a homicide detective to Some solve. The detective your case. starts telling me about his stroke. I mean, I'm dying here, literally. <laughs> What about you? You'd be making bad puns. You'd be all like, you're killing me. <laughs> that joke really crushed it. <laughs> oh, it would be a disaster. So in any case, they debate whether or not to tell him, but it doesn't make any difference because... He's pretty smart. He figures it out. He sees the way they're talking. He watches their body language, and he's like, okay, that guy did it on purpose, didn't he? Yeah. So it's a moot point. Then they activate the uh, airbags and they're about to move the train. And then Andre Brower puts his forehead to the forehead of uh, the victim. And uh, as they start to move the train, the victim speaks. What does he say? He says, I'm okay. And he also talks about how uh, when it rains, 
uh, sugar maple leaves turnover to get to get more water. What did you make of that? I don't know. I thought it was beautiful though. And then as soon as they move the train, the victim uh, immediately dies. Mm-hmm. And uh, Andre Brower walks slowly out of the uh, train station, the subway station, seeming very... How would you d- d- describe the look on his face? He's seen some shit. Yeah. And as he walks out into the sunlight, he passes by Bayless, Detective Bayless, who's talking to another cop. Bayless almost seems uh, amused. He says, this is the same crime this guy did in Chicago, and he thought we wouldn't find out about it? So it's like they both approached the same exact case from just totally different angles and kind of ended up with very different experiences. I think it's safe to say I would rather be in Bayless's shoes. You know, he has the satisfaction of having, you know, pretty pretty quickly caught this guy and figured out he was a bad actor and, you know, didn't have the emotional trauma of connecting with a dead man before he died, basically. And he did what is the more traditional job of a homicide detective because the homicide detectives usually don't get a chance to talk with the victim and get to know the victim. They just focus on finding the perpetrator. Right, right. He's had a, a much more normal day at work, um, as have the two comic relief detectives uh, than Andre Brower. What does Andre Brower say to uh, Bayless? He repeats the fun fact about the sugar maple leaf, uh, the, the sugar maple tree leaves. He says, did you know this? Yeah. And Bayless says, no, I didn't. And uh, Andre Brower says, I didn't know it either. I guess he learned something new every day. And then the two of them drive off. So what happens after the two of them uh, drive off? We see the girlfriend jog by and she jogs kind of through like all these fire trucks and all these people who've gathered there to try to save her boyfriend. So she was so close. That fucked me up. Yeah, that fucked me up. I was crying at that point. This this one really... Because when he said that... When the victim said the sugar... The, the the sugar maple thing i'm like they're gonna repeat that and then they repeated that and i was tearing up and then they said you know they repeated the fact that he said i'm okay and i was tearing up and then that and then she jogs by and i'm like god damn it like they got you they got me they got me good homicide life on the streets <laughs> more like homicide crying on the streets uh so do you regret watching it i I don't know what the hell I was thinking because you did tell me the premise of this one and I just didn't think it would just be, I didn't think it would be this sad. I think it takes, I think it takes like good writing to make me sad, you know? Because if you, if you miss, if you miss your shot with sad writing, it ends up being really funny most of the time. It is a very mawkish and sentimental yeah, and yeah. funny. Like violin strings, <laughs> like just ridiculous, you know? But this was legitimately sad. Haunting. It, it was haunting. It's easy to imagine how they could have messed this up and done a more traditional cop show episode. Yeah, they, they could have messed this up any number of ways, but obviously ta- very talented people created this and, 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 and did not fall for any of the kind of sentimentalist traps, like making the victim, you know, a wonderful, likable person who's just there to teach you about, you know, how forgiving humanity can be <laughs> or making, you know, making the... Uh, the villain anything other than just a a creepy loser or you know having a big 
heartfelt scene where the the jogging girlfriend says goodbye to her boyfriend at the last second. Like they they knew to keep it grounded. Is that is that all you got to say about this one? Mm-hmm. So I would say, I would say overall, um, this episode of Homicide: Life on the Streets Subway may not be for the faint-hearted, but it certainly takes you on a stirring emotional journey. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore to underscore me underscore. And at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T-O. Thanks Thanks so so much much for listening. listening.